Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording a UFO activity. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling. The ghost towards the ground. Why? Oh my god, are you seeing this? To a formation forming. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is John Stevenson. On tonight's show, we have an in-depth interview with Dr. Judy Wood, author of Where Did the Towers Go? Also, our very own Michael Clean with another top ten list. We're going to start off the show with Dr. Judy Wood right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back to Thresholds Radio. With us right now is Dr. Judy Wood, author of Where Did the Towers Go? which is an amazing fact-filled book on the events of 9-11. Dr. Wood presents the evidence of direct free energy technology being used on 9-11. For those of you that can't quite understand what caused the buildings to basically turn to dust, this book is a must-read. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wood. How are you doing this evening? Great. How are you? Very good. Thank you. For those of our listeners that aren't familiar with you or your work, would you like to tell them a bit about yourself and what got you involved in this research? Well, uh, I saw that there was something wrong that day, and it bothered me that, you know, I remember standing in the faculty conference room and seeing what looked like a sweater unraveling. You know, you pull one, tug one yarn, and the whole sweater comes undone. Right. That's what the building looked like. And it is, you know, wait a minute, what's going on here? That's something I've never seen before. Nice. And um, but you know you assume the grown-ups are going to take care of it. You know the, the researchers and the and the government agencies and so forth. And after all, you have your work that you need to get back to doing. But uh, it came to a point where I realized the grown-ups weren't going to take care of it, and somebody needed to. And whose job is it? This is our country. This is our world. If we we don't take responsibility for it, nobody is. Exactly. And I remember the day that I told my mom I was going to uh, start getting into this. She said, if you do, you won't have a job. I said, if I don't, nobody will. And so um, that's why I set out doing it. Well, I mean, for anyone that's read this book already, they know it. This it's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's it's documented from page one to the end. I mean, it, this is 100% fact. It's a really, really well-written book. You got your, you got your bases covered for all those uh, people out there that say you don't know what you're talking about. It's kind of strange, though, that um, it's almost like I was made for this, uh, that all of my background and training was for this. Uh, my bachelor's degree is in civil engineering, and my master's degree is in engineering mechanics, which is really like applied physics. And my PhD is in materials engineering science, and that makes me a forensic scientist. My um, Most of my work was in looking at material properties and materials characterization using optical methods and interference. Now, all the things I've just listed there came into play here. And it's kind of amazing. It's uh, unusual to find somebody with, with that combination of degrees. 
and background and experience. With my you know, optical interference work, image analysis and looking at material properties through what images can tell you is what I did. And so I see these pictures and the, the things jump out. And so I just describe what, what I see in the pictures to the reader. So um, don't want people to believe me. I want them to believe themselves. And my book is really, really written to empower the reader to understand it for themselves. Oh, and you will too. You read this book, I guarantee you get to the end. <laughs> You're going to definitely believe it completely and understand it. it yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing. It doesn't come into one... Uh, you know, easy um, a fad term to describe it. Most people are trained to do pattern matching. You know, like, uh, hmm, I know about a slingshot, a baby gum, and a firecracker. Itty bitty mighty mo, it's got to be one of those. Now, you don't start with conclusions and then choose your conclusions and work backwards. You let the, the evidence lead you to the conclusions and not let the conclusions color the evidence. Exactly, and that's just what you did here. I say the thing that got me, there's so much to cover in this book, actually, but the one thing I was telling you off air that got me interested was the toasted cars. A lot of people have never heard of this. Do you want to briefly tell them, uh, or you don't even have to be briefly, actually. Do you want to talk about that a bit? That It's a fascinating subject. Sure. Um, I say I don't start out with conclusions. I start out with the evidence. And something that just jumped out at me was these toasted cars. And I call them toasted cars because you know, they're toasted, as in like they're toast, they're history. They're just you can't gotta go get a new one. You can't fix this one. It, it's it's done for. I don't want to use known terminology for unknown phenomena. Like uh, burnt? No, because we don't know that fire was the cause. But we do know this is cars beyond repair. They're actually and melted. Just the engines for most part. Yeah, engine missing or the, the front part of the back part. And it has abrupt stops. And fire doesn't do that. You know, with fire, you have hot, cold, and all shades in between. And yeah. it's it tapers off. You don't have, you know, completely, you know, charred up to... A perfect line and then pristine thereafter right and what the weird thing is they like say if you look through here at the pictures the, the rubber gaskets around windshields and windows and in some cases the interiors are still intact but yet the metal's all charred and rusted too or this one where the plastic molding the trim around the window is uh, still there but the the bright work metal trim on the outside that goes around is gone and it's uh the paint is all blistered up like it was, you know, something happened underneath it. And, and that's something you never, ever heard of in any mainstream media. I mean, I didn't hear about it till someone mentioned it to me last year and I did research and I came across you. But that's something you never heard anywhere. And this is something really big, too. And, and some of the first responders were talking about it first. They, you know, water had no effect on the, on the car fires. They, were, they called them car fires. The water had no effect on them. Now, that is pretty strange. Oh yeah, I mean, like I said, you've you've got all kinds of photos of them in here. They're just physically melted, but apparently without heat, because a lot of these there's paper sitting right next to them, and the paper's not being isn't on fire. It just defies logic. Right, and there's this one where the inside is got some horrendous fire going on, and you know, someone said, "Oh, that's from falling debris." And I said, "Well, how did the debris get inside? Inside did it come with a, a locksmith? <laughs> it is completely contained in the car." Well, isn't yeah, one of them have an oxygen tank or something sitting on the seat or something like that? Or wasn't? Yeah, we, we don't we don't know when that got tossed in there. Oh, yeah, that's true. That could have been there any time. Yeah, 
But but there's this one picture too where the there's a van parked in front of the car that's you know toasting away whatever it's going on. It looks like it's burning, but you don't know what that that is. And the the van in front of it looks like it has fire on the side panel of the van. Nothing else, just the side panel of the van. It doesn't make it's sense. And these were damaged too, uh, if I remember right, up to like a half mile away from the towers, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, my detractors sometimes say that, well, oh, it was towed. Well, okay, whether or not it was towed doesn't explain the damage. But there, we do have eyewitnesses over on FDR Drive that saw a car go into spontaneous combustion. And, you know, people have tried to find answers to their questions. And, and best that this guy come up with to fit into his own, you know, world experiences is, gee, he thought a fireball must have gotten loose from the from the building that rolled down the street and got to the car because why else would the car go into spontaneous combustion down here? Well, it makes no sense because we all saw the buildings fall and there was that huge dust cloud, but there wasn't a big fire cloud like a nuclear explosion. It wasn't a big heat wave that blew down the street. Or the the parking lot full of them that has a sea of unburned paper in between the buildings and the car park. But the it's best I could tell that the timing of when these this quote spontaneous combustion event occurred it it occurred just after the towers went away like uh the north tower went away and there's this fellow running up um west broadway well first first he tried to get into um uh, building seven and then he decided he wasn't going to be safe there and came out and started going up the street it was pitch black because the dust the fine dust went out and blocked out 100 percent of the sunlight and then he said thank goodness the car started uh, igniting because then he could see where he was going and he said they just started lighting up you know one after the other as he passed them so this wasn't while the towers were coming apart this was just after that's that's uh, important and same with the um the car park the cars just appeared to go in spontaneous combustion there wasn't there what is it a 1400 vehicles damaged and all or something like that um we don't know how many were damaged but we know that 1400 of them were towed away where there was enough left to be taken away right <laughs> we don't you don't know the rest and you know folks say well they're they're parked around uh the towers and then towed you know moved to around all around manhattan well first of all how many cars can you fit around the base of of the towers not 1400 of them and then are they going to be playing musical cars moving around around streets of manhattan it seems like they had more important things to do at that moment right and uh you know we do have eyewitnesses that saw like the south streets street seaport uh car ignite down there and also um the toasted car park which is in the northwest corner you know off of you know diagonally across the street that one uh is just you know lots and lots of toasted cars there it was odd about that too though it's not as if a heat wave went down there and everything exploded it was just hit and miss certain ones were toasted certain ones weren't and uh the trees were so you know bushy leaves on the trees I saw that, and the flags actually were all still fine. Trees and bushes were still green, not affected. And if anyone's had a fire near a bush or a tree, you know how easy a tree turns brown and dies. And uh, West Broadway, what was interesting is none of the buildings got toasted. None of the street signs were toasted. We didn't see burned bodies laying around. People, people were, you know, when the dust cloud rolled out, people were left covered with dust. Right. But the vehicles, every single one of the vehicles were toasted in part or, or completely. Only vehicles. Is there any else. official explanation for this? Has anybody ever acknowledged this or has this just never happened, one of those things? Uh, I think I'm the only person who's been talking about this. 
No, otherwise, so, you, you're you're the troublemaker, aren't you? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm a real troublemaker, and 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 I haven't stopped talking about it. <laughs> well, okay, the toasted cars is bizarre, but how about the flipped cars? That's <laughs> uh, yeah, with, with all the leaves still on the trees. And, and they're basically still in their parking spot, right? They're just upside down. Right, right, like a parking problem. They, they <laughs> like Except the tires are supposed to be going downward towards the pavement, not up. In it, the it actually it looks as if a big giant, and I'm not trying to be funny, but it looks like a giant just picked these cars up and put them right back in their spots upside down. There's, there's something else that's pretty strange. I start noticing the, the theme. Uh, there's like a... a upside-down car in front of a toasted car parked in front of the WFC1 building. That's World Financial Center. One. Uh -huh. And it, it's right in the same parking space, you know, like like it was supposed to be in the parking space. But the vehicle behind it is, like, almost completely toasted. At least the front end of it is. And it's still sitting in its parking spot. But the flip car doesn't look toasted at all. And I started looking around, and it seems like the cars that are upside-down looked to be in much better condition than the ones that were up right side up. Yeah, there weren't any burnt ones upside down, if I remember right, weren't they? Weren't those ones actually just perfectly normal, except they were upside down? Right, except there's a police car with a little bit of a, a toasted spot on it down at the bottom, but for the most part, it's okay. And, that's, uh, and this is just one of the many, many strange things that happened there that, that nothing was reported on, too. I got a list of things here for you, but you can go down the line too. I got a, well, I have, I have two pages me, of questions uh, for you. <laughs> all right, here's uh, the introduction that that I like to give. The, the towers didn't burn up, nor did they slam to the ground, but turned into dust in midair. And that's and, actually been filmed. That happened when they fell down, and those big sections yeah. were still up there, and they just vaporized on camera. Well, not vaporized. That that implies heat. Well, okay. That's why we have a new word, dustified. A, a, a new uh, phenomenon phenomena needs a new word to describe it. If you use a known word for a known phenomenon and you have an unknown phenomenon, that's unscientific. Well, there you go. So that's why I've used uh, a new vocabulary. You notice at the end of the book there's a glossary for, for definitions of things. Yeah, I saw your but dustification that, chapter. I read that. I actually got a note on that, so it's my fault for not saying the right word. <laughs> oh, that's all right. But it, it frees you to talk about, you know, rather than talking about characteristic 597-3A, you're going to have a hard time remembering that, so you're not going to use it like you should. But dustification or dustified or, you know, toasted, those words are easy to use, and they're not going to be mixed up with anything. The same with when I use food terms like, you know, it's a burrito. It looks like burrito. It looks like a lasagna noodle. Yeah, I actually you know, like that. <laughs> some of the beams. You're not going to confuse those with food. Well, I think there's but, part that was good about this book, actually. It was easy to understand. It wasn't written, like, over my head. But it also, it, it doesn't, you know, some, some of my detractors say, oh, that's insulting. That's unscientific. No, if you don't know the phenomenon, what, what do you call it? And, you know, it's going to be easy and simple to use. Like, dustification, I think everyone, that should be a word. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it needs to be added to the dictionary. Well, that's what they that did after the towers went down. Those big sections were s still standing. And then right there on TV, they just they kind dustified. of. Yeah. And, and they were gone. Oof. And again, that's something that's never been acknowledged, even though it was on TV. I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about it. Uh, Aaron Brown uh, you know, said, and we have smoke there on the right covering the, yeah, he called it smoke covering yeah. it. Yeah, but, it, it uh, was a magic smoke. It went over the beams and they were gone. That's what it was then. Right. It, um, 
why I say how you know the towers didn't burn up or slam to the ground but turn to dust. The, the evidence, the, the the most glaring evidence of this, is three things. Uh, if they crashed to the ground, you'd see a, a big pile of rubble there. Yes. Uh, something's missing, like rubble. Um, and number two, if they crashed to the ground, Lower Manhattan would have been flooded, because the towers were actually built in the Hudson River, with a dike around them. They called that the bathtub. It was sort of like the inverse of bathtub. It kept the water out. Right. A dike that went 70, that 70, 70 feet below the water table. Now, if you crash down two 500,000-ton buildings on a, on the the wall of that dike, you're going to have water rushing in. And in the bathtub, you had uh, the subway tunnels that go over to New Jersey and all around Manhattan. Lower Manhattan would have been flooded. Right. Didn't happen. Well, wasn't and it the, fully intact, too? Didn't they pull train cars out of there that were basically fully intact? Right, right. At first, they were worried that they had a leak someplace because there was water down in the tunnel. But, you know, they had fire hoses on it, and they had the thing wide open and raining down. But once they pumped the water out, stayed out. No leak. And that was just such a surprise. That's because the and building didn't actually fall apart and land like a normal building would have right. when it collapsed. And the bathtub did get damaged. A couple of days later, when they brought in earth-moving equipment, the earth-moving equipment damaged it. Two 500,000-ton buildings falling out didn't. Hmm. Imagine that. And and also, you know, sound of it. And the third thing is, we can go to these things in more detail, is uh, the seismic signal. If a building slams down onto bedrock, that bedrock's going to ring like a tuning fork. Would you believe that the, none of the seismic stations picked up any waves that what the, uh, the primary and the secondary waves, which normally mark um, you know, the distance between their arrival times, tell you how far away the epicenter is of an earthquake. Those S and P waves didn't travel to the seismic stations. In other words, the signals did not travel through the earth. There was only surface waves. So two of the tallest buildings in the world fell to the ground and it didn't make any It didn't shake. send a signal through the earth. It didn't travel through the ground, only surface waves. Now, imagine King Kong reaching over and lifting up those towers and tossing them up in the space or something. Just taking two 500,000-ton two buildings and lifting them off the ground, that ground is going to recover from that weight. Right. And it's going to create a surface wave. So if you remove these buildings' weight from that bedrock, you just lift, the, lift it off, you're going to create a surface wave. It looks like that's, that's the only disturbance, really, pretty much that was recorded. That's amazing. And those buildings came down, too, without, with very little collateral damage around them. It's, I mean, they, they came down perfectly, or not actually came down, but... They went away. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, no collateral damage for the most part around them. They could have been devastating if they would have fell over sideways, but since they, they just dustified or whatever, <laughs> there's no damage anywhere. Right. Like, if, if those buildings were, you know, pancaking down, you'd have stuff squirting out. Or if you had bombs in the building... You'd have stuff, you know, shooting out, and the adjacent buildings would look like they'd been machine gun fired. Right. With all that stuff shooting out. Wasn't there uh, puffs, of, puffs of smoke to... though? Wasn't there puffs of smoke coming out where people were saying they thought there were explosions or something? Uh, it wasn't puffs of smoke. It was it probably a dustified building, but it was it was squirts of some sort. Okay. And and it could have could also. It was very likely that it was uh, water from the water tanks because you have water tanks every so many floors all the way up the building. Oh, that's true, too. Because, you know, you can't pump at a maximum of like 10 floors at a time. 
And so they, they it's kind of a leapfrog. They they pump it up to one tank, which pumps it up to the next tank. Because you can't you imagine the head on that that siphon tube. Right. You know? <laughs> so you you can't uh, you know pump it directly up. So they pump it in stages. So shouldn't they tanks. shouldn't they so technically have it? A little bit of a tidal wave too when that thing crashed down then supposedly yeah yeah because there's a whole lot of water you know tanks in there but here's another uh, thing from a emergency medical technician a first responder said who was there when when uh, the second tower went he said i don't remember the sound of the building uh, i guess both of them the sound of the buildings hitting the ground somebody told me that it was measured on the richter scale i don't know how true that is if the building's is hitting the ground that hard how do i not remember the sound of it that's michael ober who said that that would have been a deafening sound right there you know and real if a building actually fell on the traditional way you, you would it have heard that like it was raining dump trucks you know a whole bunch of 20-ton dump trucks boom 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 yeah people did hear explosions but you know bombs do go boom but not everything that goes boom is a bomb think of an egg in your microwave oven it's a raw egg, you know, the whole egg, you put it in your microwave oven, it's going to go boom. Exactly. From a steam explosion. But it's not a bomb. There were booms. And something that few people realize is that those booms were going off at ground level in fire trucks. The oxygen tanks, you know, that firefighters wear. Right. Or the air tanks they wear so they can breathe when they go into the smoky areas. They had extra tanks on their, their uh, fire trucks and other emergency vehicles. They were blowing up. Oh, they were that's exploding interesting. at ground level. I've got, a, a, I guess, a, a quote by one of the firefighters talking about one of the uh, ambulances, huge ambulances. It must have had Scott bottles or oxygen bottles on it. They are all going off. You would hear the air go boom, and they are all exploding. And then another one said, um, the Scott cylinders and the oxygen cylinders were all letting go. They're all blowing up left and right. And do they have any explanation for that? Nope. Uh, my, my favorite one was um, uh, Rene Davila. His, his uh, supervisor asked him, did your vehicle uh, survive? He goes, well, we were there. You know, the vehicle 219 was destroyed. And he says, well, was it on fire? And Rene says, what? He asks again, well, was it on fire? Fire, we saw the sucker blow up. We heard a boom. I love the way he just cuts right to the chase. That must have just blown their minds. I have had uh, some first responders contact me after reading my book, and it's given them so much relief because, you know, it, people wouldn't believe what they're saying. They had to quit talking about it because it was, uh, you know, who? It, it's just unbelievable. Dirt, too. Wasn't dirt trucked out in pretty big quantities in, back in? Like it, it's trucked in and then trucked out, and uh, it's kind of dumped on stuff. Uh, the most dramatic picture I saw was taken on Halloween. So that's like six weeks later. Mm -hmm. You see all this wet dirt. It's like potting soil. Nice uh, new uh, tire track marks in the wet dirt. But you see this this fuzzy white uh, fog-looking stuff oozing up, you know, kind of rising up through the dirt. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not on fire. Also, it's interesting. The days it rained, there was less of this fuming I call it fumes, not smoke, not dust. You know, we don't know what the cause is. Fumes is kind of a generic term where, um, you know, smoke, you're implying it's, it's fire is the cause. So you have these fumes coming up, but on days it rained, the fumes would be decreased. On dry days, the fumes would increase. Now, mm. if it's, if it's uh, hot underneath, if you put water on a hot fire, you get steam. Uh, and, you know, lots of this 
fuming, cloudy stuff come rising up. Also, you get steam explosions. Well, on the pieces that were left, which weren't very many, but there was no really uh, signs of, like, load failure. Right. I talk about the lasagna noodle. Yeah, loading doesn't turn a piece of, a steel beam into this wound up, curled up, like, package ribbon looking stuff. It's, um, they're smooth, not kinky, they're smooth, curly pieces of steel. Yeah, they're just, they're completely, un, they're not deformed whatsoever. It kind of looks like they were just yanked out of the side of the building and thrown down on the ground. Or, or uh, oh, the rolled up carpets, I call it. The um, outer part of the buildings were made out of prefab units mm-hmm. of um, three columns wide and three stories tall. I call them wheat checks. That term originally comes from a, a photographer on the scene who, who called them wheat checks because that's what they look like, the cereal. And um, if those had buckled from too much overload, they, they should be bending around the horizontal axis, you know, kinked over. Right. But they were curled around the vertical axis. Those columns were still straight, but they're wrapped up in, you know, curled up the, the bundles of three, and they looked like rolled up carpets. The spandrel belts kind of wrapped around them smoothly. Well, yeah, there's bends in there too, smooth bends, and then there's other bends that remind me of uh, John Hutchinson's experiments where he, he's uh-huh. melting things, and I know you talk about John Hutchinson in here too. Yeah, I didn't realize, I, I didn't know anything about John Hutchinson's work while I was collecting the data initially, and I just kept tabulating the data, and if I didn't know what something meant, I didn't force it. I still knew it was important and would put it, you know, put it aside until I knew what to do with it. Remember, let the evidence tell you what happened. Correct. And and so, I like, the split thickness of the car's doors, you know, this isn't a laminate structure, but it was half the thickness looked like it was peeled outward. You know, the, get a split thickness of the car door and then curl it back like a sardine can. Like, that is weird. Mm. I didn't know what to think of it. And a bunch of other things, especially, you know, the, the flip cars weren't toasted in general or much less toasting on them than the upright cars. Hmm. So they're either, either toasted or they're flipped. And, you know, it seems like the effects keep going on. And I just listed all these different characteristics. And then one day I happened upon somebody's blog where I found every single one of the um, phenomena that I've been listing replicated, like like on somebody's kitchen counter, <laughs> you know, it, on a small scale. And that was John Hutchison's blog, including... And it's known, the Hutchison effect is known to have either lift or disruption. Cars either flip or they're toasted. And I'm glad I found, you know, all the, the characteristics first. And, and then it was an easy match, so I wasn't, you know, wasn't letting the, uh, the conclusions color the evidence. It was the other way around. The conclusions, I mean, the evidence led to the conclusions. Well, if you look, at, jo- you look at John's work and you look at pieces of steel from the towers, it looks like something he actually did. His little laboratory there, same, same effects whatsoever. Right, and in different scales, but, you know, very similar type of things, including, yeah, the peeling effect. He's got some aluminum that's just all peeled open. It's extruded aluminum. And it's not laminated. Also, transmutation. And there's samples from the from the WTC where they found like high levels of you know different things in there, like like uh, sulfur and some other things. Mm-hmm. His uh, the effect of of what he has done with materials, it actually changes things. And one of the the most startling was like a a, a sample of brass. Brass has in it. A lot of copper and zinc, and the affected the the non-affected region has a whole lot more copper than zinc, and the affected region you know, is messed up with this effect. The toasted region has equal amounts. In other words, the copper has decreased relative to the zinc, or the zinc has increased. But I think it's the copper has uh, decreased. Now, explain how that happens, because um, 
it is in heat because the zinc boils before copper even melts. Oh, that's interesting. So you would you would get rid of the zinc before you get rid of the copper. But here, the copper goes away before the zinc. It, it doesn't mix. I mean, the, and the beams, too, some of the beams they found, they're like extremely thin, like tissue paper, kind of tissue beams, as you put it here. Yeah, they're, or dissolved. Uh-huh. What weird thing is, is you don't ever hear about any of this stuff. It's just, I mean, you, you seem to be the only person that's bringing this out. And it's so bizarre. This should be something you'd think everyone would be talking about. Right, and, and the fire. Uh, well, people like neat, neat and tidy little packages. They want to, you know, have everything wrapped up and handed to them without noticing this is something we've not seen before right it, like like the file cabinet there's only one file cabinet in all of those buildings there's one file cabinet that was recovered and it it, it was look looked like a basketball kind of it was crumpled up it wasn't squashed it was just kind of you know shriveled up and uh, had colored folder dividers in it that were still colored yeah. so it wasn't heat and also had money in it and it belonged to the uh, ben and jerry's ice cream store and they found the owner and gave his money back and a, and a building those buildings the size of those i mean I just imagine how many filing cabinets there had to be i mean thousands and thousands and thousands and that's the only one that they found? Uh, the thing I get off on is the, the toilets. Toilets are easy to identify, or parts of them. You know, big, smooth ceramic ones. Yes. Uh, you know, how many toilets? At least, uh, you know, two or 3,000 toilets. When you find a piece of one... Yeah, they didn't find anything like that at all then, huh? No, and uh, some of the um, people who made it out of the building were describing the marble on the walls crumbling as they walked down the stairs. It's... <laughs> Definitely not your normal building coming down. No. <laughs> that that uh, clump of coins that you're talking about? Right. That's another interesting People assume, see, it's, again, it's just this pattern matching that people are conditioned into from SAT test or who knows what, mm -hmm. you know, multiple choice test, um, that uh, yeah, people look at that and assume it's melted. But if you look at it carefully, you get pennies in there. Pennies have a zinc interior with the copper on the outside. Remember, zinc boils before copper melts, mm -hmm. and it's very low temperature that, that zinc uh, boils at and melts at. So, you know, why don't you have exploded pennies or, or uh, you see a nickel in there and you see, you know, some of each coin in there. And the coins, you can you can see George Washington's face. Yeah, you can actually see oh. him quite clearly, too. So this isn't melted with conventional heat from some other source. Yeah, that's the first thing I when I saw it, you know, a melted glop of money. But, you know, that's just because the only term I can actually visualize when I right. see it. Just, just like, um, you know, something's glowing and people assume it's red hot and glowing. Right. But if it's sitting on a piece of paper... It's glowing for a different reason, and the paper's not burning. Well, that was one of the really odd things about there. But besides the trees and the flags not being burned, the amount of paper that was out there, and none of it was burned, right next to burning vehicles, all kinds of stuff, and none of the paper seemed to be affected by it. I think it was Scott Pelley that did one of the... the um or somebody else, I think it was Scott Pelley. There was a, uh, one of the news things a day or two after 9-11 talking about all the paper. And said, well, maybe it's because we have so much of it. Because it, it, everything out of the building turned into dust, but there's all this paper. It makes no sense whatsoever. You, and I say, it's, it's good that you're bringing this out because no one else seems to be doing it. But I say, I'm thumbing through your book again now. I just can't put it down. And uh, you, people have got to get this if you don't already have it. It's absolutely amazing you read this whole book and you don't you don't come up with the same conclusion or realize something's off here you're just there's something wrong with you we're like on page one, <laughs> 192 that's another weird one we're looking kind of um east northeast over the the remains of the 
complex. Uh-huh. You're looking over WFC2's nice smooth dome. Yeah. Nice clean dome. Completely untouched. You see little ridges around in it, you know, the texture on it. and it, It's, yeah, completely un, untouched. And then the middle of Building 6 is just missing. The, re- the edges are there, but the middle is just gone down to the ground. And the, the most startling thing is look over where Building 7 was, and the post office that was that was three lanes of traffic across the street. Mm-hmm. You see bare sidewalk. The building didn't spill completely across the street even. Yeah, buildings don't generally fall down quite like this. Of course, they, 40, well, there's not enough debris for a 47-story building. That's the problem, too. Yeah, and, and uh, I've examined the side of that building. Uh, it, it doesn't look like it was fired with a machine gun at it. And if you had explosions coming out of that building when it was coming down, or even just getting the debris out of the way for that building to come down, it would be, you know, like shrapnel all over the side of the, the adjacent building. Yeah, the other, all the buildings around this, there would have been massive collateral damage for this buildings of this size to come down. And, and they just don't go away like that. No. But the most startling thing is, you know, on page 191, that's a picture of the elevation of what was left elevation map. then i drew on top of it, kind of a ghost outline of what had been there oh that's There's actually two. what's left that the bottom <laughs> for you listeners at home that don't have the book we're sorry <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I show a little number on the top how many story buildings nine story buildings of it but the main body of building four just went missing wow it just went away it wasn't there and uh one story below on ground level Below ground level was the mall, and I have, a, I have pictures of guys walking down there, you know, looking for survivors. You, you, you can see what stores they were, you know, Innovation Luggage, you know, those Hallmark cards. Doesn't the, yeah. actually, This is actually an amazing picture. I, I saw it before, but I didn't realize what it is. That that green is actually the aftermath is how it ended up. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is the elevation. That can't be. It's just, I mean, I know it's true. It's just. And, and see those arrows where it says people survived here? Yes. We're talking about the, most people, you know, talk about three uh, high-rise buildings, you know, going away. Right. But, you know, building three gets ignored. It's a 22-story building, which is, you know, a very tall building. And it pretty, pretty much all disappeared except that little clump at one end. And there's a group of people, I think it was 14 people there survived, and also the base of Tower 1, that little pimple down there. Right. Uh, 14 people there survived. They had uh, 106 floors above them go away. And they, they were sure they you know they were goners because they survived this thing coming down on them by some stroke of luck. By the time, you know, folks dug them back out, you know, they'd be dead. Right. So they assumed they were goners until the dust cloud cleared. And they looked up. I'll, I'll read you the, the quote from uh, Jay Jonas, one of the survivors. He okay. said, I looked and said, guys, there used to be 106 store- floors above us, and now I'm seeing sunshine. There's nothing above us. That big building doesn't exist. And he later said, these are the biggest office buildings in the world, and I didn't see one desk, one chair, one phone, nothing. And that just defies logic. How can you be in the basement of a... What is it, a 110-story oh, building and have it, it come down? It wasn't basement. It was a third and fourth floor. And there's another one, um, uh, James McGlynn. He's on his handy talkie there talking, you know, their mayday calls, talking to their buddies to come rescue him. And um, he'd say, uh, we, we kept telling them we were in stairwell B. I remember everybody had the same exasperation I did. We must have told them 100 times, B stairwell, the second floor, third floor, fourth floor. Of the North Tower. I mean, B stairwell, second, third, fourth floor. North Tower. B stairwell, North Tower. Where are you? North Tower. 
Stairway B, second, third floor. You could hear they didn't understand where we were. I keep going, my God, aren't you guys listening? Then they said, where's the North Tower? I was like, what do you mean, where's the North Tower? (laughs) Their buddies must have thought they were calling from the beyond. Because you look, and there's no building left, except this tiny little clump, you know, little three three or four floors worth Uh of stairs. That's all that was left. And how could that is? And they looked up and saw blue sky. Uh, Another one described uh, walking out onto an empty football field. This just doesn't make sense at all. But you look at the picture on the cover of the book, and once you, you know, get the brainwashing cleared out, because people were showing pictures of what was going on and saying, this is a collapse, this is a collapse. There's a pile, pile. People work on a pile. Pile, collapse, collapse, pile. And pretty soon people are conditioned to see these pictures and think pile and collapse. Right. The collapse of the pile. But it, once you get rid of all that and look at the like the cover picture um, of my book, mm-hmm. um, that's a building turned to dust in midair. That's not a collapse. Part of it's going up. Part of it's squirting out. It's just it looks like a drinking fountain. Yeah, it actually does. It looks like a water main break when the water just shoots up in the air, kind of. Right. It, in the Midwest, they call us bubblers. That's why I tend to call that picture the bubbler. The you know another odd thing here too. Wasn't there like a huge amount of rust on certain things on vehicles, parts of the building, well, stuff? Instantly. Inst- in, what's the uh, I mean reasoning for an instantaneous rust? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. You know, but what's the reason in this situation? And after I get to looking at more evidence, I can't say every single piece fits under this, but it seems like a general thing. Like, for example, um, you know, you get this, quote, car fire. These guys are putting out, before they even finish putting out the fire, the thing's already rusted to death. You know, and cars nowadays are, the the steel doesn't rust that easily. It's made with um, various, you know, components in there of, you know, different amounts of carbon and nickel and other things to keep it from rusting as much. Same with structural steel. It's that's why they don't make buildings out of pure iron. Uh, they add these other little doodads to uh, improve the structural properties as well as the environmental resistance, uh, so they don't you know rust away. So to get a piece of steel just instantly rusting, like there's uh, pictures of some pipes, look like sewer pipes, where it looks like one patch has just been dipped in orange rust, and the other patch is, is fine. And it wasn't that it just got rained on or something. It was got exposed to something weird. But it got me thinking, you know, okay, you put an, an iron skillet in your sink to scrub, and you scrub the, the uh, crud off of it, and you leave it soaking there, and you come back an hour later or so, or the next morning, and it's bright orange rust. Uh, pure iron rusts very easily like that. So how do you turn uh, a piece of steel that's pretty resistant to rusting into pure iron. You, you have to get the uh, molecules to kind of let go of each other. So those little doodads fall by the wayside and you end up with pure iron on the surface. One thing that actually stands out in these pictures too, some things are so rusted, look like they've been out in the weather for months. Or years. And other pieces aren't even, they still look shiny like they're brand new. Right, and or sometimes the same piece, just a different part of it. And there's some steel that looks like it's been dissolved in acid, in an acid bath kind of appearance. There's just so many inconsistent things in here. That's just absolutely crazy. That the the the, the rolled uh, rolled carpet, as you call it, the steel. That this stuff is just bizarre looking too. It just looks like, almost looks like it was Play-Doh, you know. And you just took and just rolled it up. It doesn't look like. The force of a, something like that, and then the other. Oh, the, it, it it wouldn't. Act, the building isn't loaded 
uh, you know, by curling around the vertical axis. Right. It, that's another weird thing. It didn't buckle from an overload in the axial direction. The peeling appearance looks just like something right out of John's laboratory. That's like carbon copy of the things I've seen him do. That is. That, that um, uh, emergency medical technician that um, Rene Davila, who talked about his, his his vehicle exploding. He talked about, I don't have the quote right here, but um, he talked about his bag, you know, with his tools in it, mm-hmm. his, his medical tools. He said uh, he has his bag, he holds it, he keeps it like a trophy, like some people collect basketballs. Right. And he said he hasn't touched whatever it was. The, the force was so strong, it went inside his bag. He hasn't touched whatever it was. And I'm imagining, does it look like John Hutchison stuff? What would make him say, describe whatever was in there you know, he has he, he was afraid to touch it, but the, he knew the force was so strong it went inside the bag. This whole thing absolutely defies logic. Not things that we know, I mean, normal logic act. This nothing here fits anything. It's just I can't believe no one's done anything about it. It's just insane. Page one seventy four is a that's another uh, significant picture. It's, um, all that's left of Tower One. See, all you listeners out there, you're going to have to buy this book now because we're, <laughs> we're, we're looking at pages you can't see. Wait, wait, I'll try to describe it. There's an ambulance that was parked in front of Tower 1. Tower 1 went away, and the ambulance is still parked there. It, it looks like it's in pristine condition. I don't know about the door, but it, does, it wasn't clobbered by any big chunks of steel or anything. You don't see any big pieces of steel around it. Well, that's what doesn't make sense either, building that size if it you know fell conventionally. There'd be stuff everywhere. And it didn't spill across the street. No, it doesn't. They say it just makes it no sense. Now, now, another aspect of this, which isn't quite as pleasant, is the people that were falling or jumping. That they they were like undressing before they were jumping and very. Well, they big... didn't. I don't think they. Very many of them jumped. Chose to jump. Mm-hmm. They so for some reason they they went out left the building. It wasn't a conscious decision even if they left the building because of heat you know what they perceived as heat as as i state in the book i think um you know if your hand is on a hot burner on a stove your hand leaves that burner real fast you don't stop and think about it reflex your hand just goes off of there so you know something that is that intense you just it's it's not something you sit and contemplate now these people hang on the outside of the buildings taking their clothes off they want to live they're still hanging on to the building so why are they taking their clothes off? If they're planning on jumping, uh, why take the clothes off? You know, it, it, it also, um, people who left the building all seem to be empty-handed, which was kind of strange. If you're going to choose to die, then you think you take your purse or, or a picture of your loved one or some identification? It, it's, it's like, um, uh, you know, maybe they're on the way to the restroom and suddenly they, they, they found themselves outside the building flying through the air. You know, like, how did I get here? It, 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 you know, it's one guy is kind of flapping his, his arms like he's trying to flap wing, his wings, like like he fell or, I don't know, you know, he does, it's like he doesn't know how he got there. And, and also, weren't they, didn't you say that they were out farther from the building than they technically should have been? A person can't technically jump that far? Right. And we don't know what kind of weird, you know, wind or, you know, anti-gravity or who knows what was going on out there. But it wasn't normal jumping with the normal... Uh, seven or eight miles an hour wind. It's just a light breeze of seven to eight miles an hour that day. So that wouldn't carry somebody, uh, you know, 100 feet from the building. You, if somebody jumped out, you'd be tumbling down near the edge of the, you know, right outside the building. 
not, not way out. Now, the, the taking the clothes off, that becomes an even stranger thing. But think about it. You're way up high in the building, and you hear about this fire. Well, if it were me, I, I'd head to the bathroom before we lost water pressure, and I'd wet down all my clothes. And maybe you have an extra T-shirt in your desk, wet that down, wrap it around your head, and then, you know, bolt for the staircase. You'd be wet. If the fire sprinklers kicked on, you'd be wet. If they didn't kick on, it was hot in there, you'd be sweating, and you'd be wet. So there's a lot of reasons for being wet. And chances are, is people were wet. Now, why they hang outside the building? There's one guy that really got to me. Um, and I really felt like, you know, he was speaking to me in a way that knowing, you know, what happened to him, I noticed this. So I felt like I, I promised him that I would tell his story because it needed to be told. Mm-hmm. And that made it easier to deal with this, too. You know, feeling a little bit a sense of responsibility that, you know, this could be anyone here. But why is he, you know, taking his clothes off outside the building? It looks like he's hanging by one hand and a foot taking his pants off. It looks like his shirt's already missing. You see other ones with their shirts missing or another one standing there with their underwear on. Uh, if, if it was fire in there, clothing protects you from fire. You know, firefighters don't fight fires in the nude. You, know, you have a protective layer. Uh, if for some peculiar reason that we don't need, don't understand that you need to take his pants off, why doesn't he, you know, in, in the smoke inside, he's just taking a big deep breath, step inside, take the pants off, then get, step back outside. Why take the pants off outside the building? And it, there's only one thing that I can see that's, that's consistent with this. You, you've heard of the uh, crowd control active denial system. I'm not saying that's what was used at all, but I'm using that as an example. Right. That, you know, people uh, just want to quick move out of, the, they don't want to stand where that, that thing is because they're getting microwaved. They have the sensation that they're burning up. And it was said that if you your clothing is wet, it's, you know, many, many, many times worse. Oh, okay. So, if, and then think about it. If you, um, uh, as, as Jesse Ventura says nicely, put a chicken on a paper plate, stick it in the microwave oven. Chicken cooks, but the paper plate doesn't. You know, moisture is affected by the microwave. So it's a different uh, type of energy wave than, you know, light or something else. And, you know, this is consistent with it, that if there was some kind of energy field inside the building that would be cooking or make it very unpleasant, you wouldn't want to step inside and take off wet clothes. You would take, want to take, you know, it's least painful outside the building, and it's least painful if you get the pants off. That was another odd thing, as bad as the toasted cars, where people are out there, you know, jumping, you hear about that happening now and then. But, I mean, you don't take your clothes off before you jump, so that that's another big one that made no right. sense whatsoever. And jumping is the last thing you do in a fire. Not if and you it, want to survive. Right, you know, you get down on the floor or whatever. Now, you brought up earlier um, the Melissa Doy audio uh that's the the woman who was um who called the into 911 oh right that said she was burning up or she was yeah. so warm it's hot it's hot i'm burning up i'm burning up it's hot it's hot it's really burning i can't breathe i can't breathe i'm choking i can't breathe and you never once heard her cough oh yeah it's true and at first i thought that was a fake call but you know i put it aside then i realized wait a minute might be something else to it okay let's here's a little side story i was gonna put this in the book but i edited it out personal story when I was at Virginia Tech I went to the pool in the morning and one night uh, the fraternity guys played a practical joke and cranked up the thermostat and the pool was either 92 or 93 Fahrenheit 
Mm-hmm. They told us that we could swim, but at our own risk. Hey, I hate getting in cold pools. This is fun. And I got in. I got about halfway across the, the pool, and I realized I was in trouble. I was making heat faster than I could get rid of it. And so I rolled over onto my back just to quit making more heat. And somebody threw me a rope. And I remember thinking, is it worth reaching over for that rope? That's awful hard. It's like swimming in honey. Hmm. You just can't make your muscles move. And I remember, you know, is it worth the trouble? In other words, your brain is incapacitated. It doesn't work very well. Also, there's a limit to how long you can stay in a hot tub or in a sauna because after a certain point, you cannot get out because your muscles don't work anymore. You get too hot. So if somebody is physically too hot, you know, they're not going to be talking very well. They're not going to be saying, it's hot, it's hot, I'm burning up, I'm burning up, I can't breathe, like Melissa Doy was doing. She thinks she's hot, but she physically is, it can't be hot to be, you know, acting like this. She would be more sluggish. Uh, you wouldn't be hyperactive. But if something was hitting your neurological system that you perceived, like, like let's say she's in a microwave beam, just to use that as an example, that would cause, you know, it's consistent with what she was describing. So it isn't necessarily that that was a fake audio tape. What she was describing was some sort of field effect, some sort of energy field that she perceived as, you know, it, if you don't see it, and it's doing something to the tissue of your skin, you might think it's burning. Right. Just like um, acid, room temperature in your hand, it feels warm because, you know, it's eating up your skin. You know, you know, or like uh, bleach. You put bleach on, in your palm of your hand, it feels warm. But you stick a thermometer and it's not warm. And so it's, it's how your nerves perceive things. But for someone to be hyperactive and not choking, but saying that they can't breathe, they're hot, they're burning up, and, 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 and you know, they're choking on the, the smoke. And I remember the, the um, uh, operator said, well, is there fire? Can you see fire? What? You know, and she, she, she uh, said you couldn't see the air. or could. Mm-hmm. You know, it was weird, the descriptions. There's another uh, first responder that described coming down, and uh, his uh, instructor said, drop everything and, and you know, Stop, drop everything. And he did. He dropped everything. Later, his boss is saying, uh, where's your face mask and oxygen tank? Well, boss, you said to drop everything. <laughs> I didn't mean it literally. And so so uh, he, he sent that guy out of the building because he didn't have his mask anymore. So he got down to the third floor, and he couldn't see any light at all. It was completely opaque air. And he got worried. And he says, wait a minute. It's not smoke. He knows it's not smoke. It was it was like thick dust. Yeah, the building was turning into dust. And and then he got out and got, uh, oh, I don't know, about 150, 200 feet from the building, and the building came apart. So he, he was one of the last people out. But he described the third floor as being like his opaque dust. Wow, that's interesting. So he was actually there when whatever happened was beginning to happen. It, yep, yep. And he knew it wasn't uh, smoke. I was going to say, being he's a fireman, too, he definitely would know it. But I'm sure whatever that was was a different effect than smoke. Yeah, there, there are other uh, ones that identified it. You know, they, they were worried that there was it was smoke. And they go, oh, no, you can breathe. breathe. It's, just, it's, it's not smoke. It's dust. Because the fire, it was, you know, lots of smoke in the air. Apparently, it, it takes out the oxygen out of the air. Correct. But this was the dust problem. A lot of them end up... Um, uh, breathing out of their armpit uh, mm. because that left a pocket, and then their their shirt was the air filter. You know, they stuck their their face in right. their shirt to their arm armpit because that was a pocket they could be breathing. Now that was uh, kind of interesting. Oh, another one when Tower Two was coming apart, dove under an emergency medical services vehicle mm-hmm. for protection, and he thought he was a goner. And everything turned black, and he couldn't see. And then as the dust cleared, the 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 sunlight showed through. 
and there wasn't any vehicle on top of him. Okay. He doesn't know where it went. It just disappeared? Yeah, whether it floated up or rolled, he, just, he has no recollection of it, but he dove under the vehicle. Mm. And he thought he was in a tunnel at first because everything was black because it was total blackout of mm-hmm. light. But, uh, yeah, didn't know where that vehicle was. That's interesting. I know the cars were burning and they were flipped upside down, but I didn't know any of them disappeared. That's why, you know, I, I say it was 1,400 where, that they counted that they removed. Uh, they, probably there's a lot more than that that went missing. Well, that's weird. You know, back to those jumpers there once. That one fireman was saying, didn't he say he never experienced this many people jumping? There was like 1,200 people that jumped out or something they were saying? Yeah, that was a, an estimate because he, he saw like uh, three or four a minute out of each face of North Tower. And that's not normal reaction for a fire. I mean, somebody might do it. I've never seen anybody but... jump before. One guy said for his 20 years being, you know, a firefighter, he's never seen anybody jump from a building. So that that right there points something strange, too. Something very bizarre was happening because they didn't know they weren't going to be able to be rescued. So why were they all just flying out of the building? Unless it was, a, you know, part of it, too, could be like a reflex, like your hand flies off of a burner. Mm-hmm. that they, they're just getting away from whatever is super painful and don't realize that they happen to be going out the window until they're out the window. And then they realize, oh, what you know, what can I do now? And by then, it's, you know, they're dead before they know it. Yeah, something odd about it, the pictures of these jumpers, they don't look like they're flailing around or doing anything. A lot of them look like they're calm, too. Have you noticed that? They just... Yeah, some some do, and there's, there's a guy in the orange shirt looked like he was flapping his wings. But that one guy that looked kind of relaxed, you know, the famous falling man. Uh-huh. He looks so graceful and relaxed, like he just got rid of the worst problem in his life, but hasn't realized the next one. Yeah, they they look like they just, they don't realize they're outside the building until they're outside, the, you know, until right. they can't do anything about it. They're away from whatever they're trying to get away from, and the next thing they realize is they're outside the building. Yeah, and um, there's some other yeah, interesting, just bizarre things with that, too. I talk about that more in my next book that I've been working on. It's, um, a, a, you know, it's more detailed. This this book is enough to, you know, overall to see what happened, um, but not so much the details up close and personal. Yeah, this but book. There's, go ahead. I was going to say, this book really is good. You know, before we forget, uh, do you have a website or where can people get your book to? Oh. Um, my regular website is drjudywood.com. That's just D-R-Judywood, four letters both first name and last name, uh, dot com. And, or um, the book site is where did the towers go dot com. All one word. It's hard to type because there's no spaces in there. Just where did the towers go dot com is the book site. Okay, I wanted to get that out there before we forgot to. I'll put links on our page for this. But believe me, everybody, you want to get this book. It is just absolutely amazing. You uh, say you'll, if, if you doubt this whatsoever after... Looking at this book, like I say, you must not have looked at the book. It's yeah, it's it's it. Um, I beat it to death ten different ways from ten different directions, and uh, it's all very consistent. But you say it's what the evidence says, and I I believe in letting the evidence uh, tell you what happened. Exactly. Round, well, round, round, and and uh, that's what keeps the cover up going. Oh yeah, especially this subject. This one is really hot. So no matter what you have. There's going to be people out there piping and instantly saying you're wrong. Oh, the entire world is 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 an expert for some reason because they have an opinion. Um, there's there's been no other um, uh, event in history that I know of uh, with, that's so emotionally charged. Exactly. How, well, how's your uh, actual reception been on this book since you've had it out? How, what kind of responses are you getting? Well, people who've read the book are blown away by it. Um, 
And uh, I, I think the um, the, the cover-up, uh, people in charge of the cover-up the cover team, is um, they, they weren't uh, banking on it being uh, so successful. And they're having trouble figuring out how to uh, muddle it up. Uh, Andrew Johnson has a good, a good phrase he uses. If they can't cover it up, they muddle it up. If they can't muddle it up, they hijack it and run it into the ditch. It's usually one of those things. And and the the way I, I've learned so much along this road of of learning about how cover-ups are run, you don't need to cover it up. You just need to have so much other stuff out there, piles and piles of stuff, so that the truth is is a needle in a haystack. But just the misinformation, which they love to do. Right, like. Well, maybe maybe it's mini nukes, or maybe it's thermite, or maybe it's super duper thermite, or maybe it's uh, super duper nano enhanced thermite, or maybe it's, you, know, you get all these things. Then pretty soon somebody throws up their arms and shrugs their shoulders and says, ah, "Oh, I guess we'll never figure out what really happened. Time to move on." I'm sure it was probably that's, the. That's a successful cover up. The shape shifting reptilians probably did it. The killer killer turtles from outer space. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Instead of guessing at you know like a multiple choice test, if you're going to do that, you're, you're going to you're fixing to mess up because whatever was used is something we've not seen before. Exactly. And you know it's classified technology. Well, that only makes sense, too, because obviously looking at it, we know we've never seen anything happen like this before. Right. And this is somebody's classified technology. We don't need to figure out who it is yet, uh, but to know that it's somebody's classified technology. And if it's classified technology, by definition, it's not in the public domain. So we should quit trying to you know, fit a square peg into a round hole or whatever. You know, try, Quit trying to you know, pick one of the choices on our standard multiple choice test. Exactly. Because the, the answer isn't there. Well, that's what's good about your book, too. You're not saying you think this person did it, you think that person did it. You're just putting the facts out. You're just saying this is what happened, and you're not blaming or, you know, playing any of those games like everyone else. You're just putting all the information out there and, and leaving it at that. Well, you first have to begin with what happened. Uh, something that, that most people forget about. They want to jump to who did it. And then get their pitchfork, you know, and, and go get the witch. Have witch burning. Exactly. You know, go get the bad guy. That that start on day one. But let's look at uh, the Casey Anthony trial. Uh, you know, the media hyped that up and got everybody grabbing their pitchfork to go get the witch, and the bad guy. And they forgot to do their their homework. The the uh, prosecution side. Mm-hmm. And the um, one of the jurors the next day. It was like she was reading the preface to my book. She said, you first have to figure out what happened before you can figure out who did it. Exactly. And and she said they couldn't find her guilty because they didn't know what the crime was. The The prosecution never determined how the child died. And if you don't know how the child died, you don't know what happened. How do you know who did it if you don't know what it is? Exactly. You know, another thing I'd like people to think of is, you know, I never appreciated so much before of, you see these uh, mystery movies where they have to prove that, you know, or, you, or you see about how a trial works, you have to prove that this per, that this is the gun and that this person's fingerprints are on the gun and all this, these details you, you almost think is like overkill. Now I understand why. Because you can't just think you saw a gun. You can't just think that this is, you know, because... You need to prove it. 
like, uh, oh, let's say you go to a magic show and you see a magician cut a woman in half in the box. Mm-hmm. And he, he, you swear he cut her in half. I sure what it looked like. But you know you're at a magic show. And, of course, it puts her together at the end. But there's, you know, we weren't told we were at a magic show. No, and this was all televised live. Yeah. But uh, sometimes if you look at something and it doesn't seem like it's possible, it, it might not just be possible. you got to look at it a little bit rationally. Like in my Chapter 4, you know, some people are saying, unbelievable, unbelievable, impossible, unbelievable. Well, when did believable, be, unbelievable become believable? Because the, the, the majority were saying it was believable that other people went along. Because people like to go with the popular herd. They don't like to go out on a limb by themselves. Yeah, and this is a touchy subject. This uh, <laughs> this one gets quite a bit of feedback. It, yeah, it, it's it's um, it's important to know what you know that you know. Does that make sense? And and know what you know that you don't know, and then not to mix the two. I understand. You know, no, That's confusing, yeah. but I understand. Right. Uh, yeah. To understand why you know what you know, not because this is what everybody else is saying, therefore it's true, and you just memorize it and assume it's true, but to be able to step back and know why you know something is true. Like you're proving a murder case. You have to prove every little step. You know, I used to think that was extra silly, but after having gone through this stuff, now I see it's very important. Exactly. Because, so otherwise, you're, you're, the assumptions you make are connecting dots that aren't necessarily correctly connected. That's, that's what's good about your book. I mean, it covers everything in it. Uh, speaking of, of this same psychological thing, yeah, people um, uh, you know, need the answers to questions. When they're given answers, they accept them, especially in a, such a situation as, as the day of 9-11. They accept the answers and go on. They don't stop to evaluate if they make sense or not. Like the uh, 24 hours later, uh, there was this conversation between George Stephanopoulos at the scene and uh, Peter Jennings in, in the studio asking George, where, where's all the, the rubble? Well, I've been asking uh, you know, folks that, and one volunteer, Robert Gulinski, said the buildings all went down to the ground, were pulverized, and then evaporated. So he's trying to make sense of a situation he doesn't understand, and that's the best he come up with. And he gets that answer and goes on, doesn't stop to think about it. Um, you know, because where is everything? Must have evaporated. Well, it's true. Even when people, you know, they say it's a demolition, a controlled demolition, and they're really good at that. But when that happens, I forgot what the formula is, but there's so much left of a building when it comes down. And, and that's a building that's, that's been gutted out beforehand. Right. Pre preparation. And this is nowhere near that. There should have been, I don't remember anymore, was it 30? This is ground level. Wasn't it supposed to be like 30, 40 floors left or something? There's some no, formula. No, yeah, 13 floors of the of the towers or so but um that's assuming the building was gutted out beforehand yeah yeah i don't think this one was it, it was street level um but the other thing that was going on is um people's shoes were apparently disintegrating oh, and yeah. they interpret that as melting and like the, the uh well-repeated phrase uh you know someone said that the steel-toed boots were melting after just a couple hours and people kept repeating that. It must be hot because they see the fumes rising, so they assume it's hot. Right. And they'd say, it was 1,100 degrees out there on the pile. Well, if your grill is 1,100 degrees, you're not going to be walking around on that. No. Uh, and if the, the steel-toed boots were melting, you know, we have no reports of burned feet. And if my steel oven 
is melting, the turkey inside is more than well done. Exactly. And this was afterwards, after the towers fell. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, though? in the in the weeks afterwards. And, and all this talk of molten metal. You know, if, if something's hot, molten metal. You know, it could be it could be uh, liquid, but it's not hot. Right. Uh, because if, if it's raining, oh, here's something that few people know. Do you know there was a uh, Category 3 hurricane right outside Manhattan? Right after 11? the same time. I did see something about that, but... Like we were talking off air, you just don't know what you can believe anymore. But I did see something about that. Oh, it's in my book, uh, chapter uh, 18. Uh, it it slowed down to a category one. Uh, it, it's kind of like a, you know how a figure skater puts their arms out to slow down. Mm-hmm. It, it it's it spread out and got bigger. And it stopped like you know around 8 a.m. on 9/11, and it was right out. Some of the pictures, like the. Uh, I think cover picture of chapter 20 or so has um, a picture of the hurricane off in the distance with the fuming towers in the foreground. Hmm. But this hurricane for four days straight was aiming right towards Manhattan. And, it, you know, like it pulled up to a chalk line, stopped, turned around, and headed out of town that afternoon. That's weird. Well, now I know where I remember reading. It was your book. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I knew I heard about it somewhere, but like you're saying, you never know what you can believe and what you can't. Yeah, well, you see the pictures of it. That's the hurricane, all right. And then you could even see the fumes coming up, rising up from uh, Manhattan. Exactly. So you know what day it was that the pictures were taken. Huh. And you know, so what's the significance of that? Well, you know, weird that we weren't told about it. And I also have on page 400 in the book, um, from like 10 to 15 minutes before the North Tower got its plane-shaped hole, uh, <laughs> there's a, uh, a weather report of these different stations, like Fox, ABC, NBC, CBS. Uh-huh. And you don't see a hurricane on any one of those. And on the other side of the page, I superimposed the size of the hurricane and where it should be. And, you know, it should be right there. And I, I well, contacted... That's, that's uh, kind of odd. Yeah. I, I contacted Scott Stevens, this uh, weather guy, and he said, well, I, how much trouble it is to, to put, you know, mouse click on the icon for a hurricane to stick it on the map. And if... You know, for four days straight, this thing was moving towards Manhattan. Yeah, it was going to turn around at some point. This is a high-pressure system moving eastward. They thought it was going to turn around on day one. Didn't. Uh, maybe on day two. No, didn't. Maybe on day three. Didn't. Maybe on day four. Well, if it didn't turn around, and if it stayed there just you know, a few hours longer, imagine the storm surges would have flooded Manhattan. And, you know, you can't evacuate people that fast. So, like when uh, Hurricane Rita was going towards Houston in Galveston, Texas... They did a, a voluntary um, evacuation, then it became mandatory. Then it turned out the hurricane di diverted and went elsewhere. Why it did is another question. But uh, even uh, this past fall, Hurricane Irene mm -hmm. was, um, you know, it kind of the coast, and it was barely a Category 1, and, and going over land, so you knew it was going to get chewed up by the time it got to New York. Yet they still evacuated New York. You know, it, and, and everyone right. heard about it, and, you know, networks talking about a hurricane they milk that for all it's worth because they want more viewers exactly i was just going to say they they milk hurricanes but yet this was out there and no one said a word oh they did but it, it was so played down and you look at the size of this thing's like 500 miles in diameter right outside you know the tip of the of manhattan has the outer bands and it was raining yeah, on Cape Cod. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> uh, it, it was interesting i had uh somebody uh it was a college professor in vermont order the book and that day they're evacuating people from manhattan you know, and he's, he's right on the other side of there in vermont 
he happened to just turn the page reading the book and started on chapter 18 and saw this big old hurricane Aaron. He never heard of it before. And he knows how it's like this nonstop coverage. Uh, and he ordered five more books. And I'm like, whoa. I have heard this somewhere else, but obviously I saw it in your book too, but I did hear it somewhere else. But like I think we were talking about that before too, there's so much stuff out there. Sometimes you just don't know what to believe. But now that I've seen it in your book, I do believe it. Well, it isn't a matter of belief. I, I give you the information for you to process. Well, exactly. That's what I mean. I mean, you've got the facts yeah. there. Because you don't want to believe blindly. You want to make, you know, you've got the facts here. want somebody here. else to think for you, and I want you to think for yourself. Exactly. That's what's yeah, so good about it, this. I mean, the, the facts are there. I mean, the pictures are there. Things are described. They point it out. They tell you everything. And all you have to do is read it, make your own decision. And they have arrows like, looky over here, you know, what I'm talking about, and... Yeah, compare these two, like comparing the Seattle Kingdom that was blown up with, you know, it right. took down controlled demolition. Would you believe that made uh, signals that traveled through the Earth, the S and B waves? Mm-hmm. So, so if if the towers were controlled demolition, here they are sitting on bedrock. How come the signal didn't travel through the Earth? Yeah, I actually had thought it did. I thought I had read that somewhere, but obviously not. Uh. It was it was surface waves it recorded, so and it was very small, like um, building. Seven made a 0.6 on the Richter scale. It's six times the potential energy, you know, compared to the kingdom. The kingdom made a 2.3. Absolutely defies logic. Uh, The the, uh, towers are 30 times, that's three times 10, times the potential energy of the kingdom. mm -hmm. And they were the equivalent of a 2.1 and a 2.3. In other words, they're the same or less of a signal compared to the kingdom. And that should have just rocked all of Manhattan when it went down. And it, it, yeah, they were they were right on bedrock. It should ring it like a tuning fork. There's just so many questions. The more you look in here, it just. Well, I don't know about questions. You can also it, what it does is it narrows down you know what you can eliminate. And from those three main things, I said buildings didn't burn up or slam to the ground. They turned into dust in midair because you know the the lack of debris pile, right. the lack of flooding of Manhattan from breaking the the bathtub, and the lack of a uh, seismic signal, lack of strength as well as the lack of it traveling through the earth. Now with those three things. Let's see what that eliminates. Debris piles, you know, if you control demolition, you slice and dice the building, it crashes to the ground, it gets busted up when it slams to the ground, uh, and you have a debris pile left over. Well, we didn't see that. Also, if it slams to the ground, you're going to have a seismic signal. Didn't happen. You'd have a flood in Manhattan. So any kind of gravity collapse is already out of the picture, you know, from natural causes or from slicing and dicing it with bombs or thermite or whatever you're going to slice it up with. Now, bombs you know, equals heat. Um, you know, and also this business of thermite. Right. Yeah, we've uh, heard that uh, before. And they say, you know, military uh, has thermite. Yeah, you know what military uses thermite for? They, they use it to burn paper. Oh, do they? Like, when when their your camp is being invaded by the enemy, you don't want them to get your top secret documents. So you have this thermite grenade that poof, you know, burns up your office instantly. And there was <laughs> no paper. There was no paper burned around here. Every, paper was everywhere. We didn't see much, maybe a few uh, scorched edges, but yeah, there's really no no paper burning. So that kind of wipes that out. It's another um, thing that uh, in my presentations I like to play kind of as a um, to lighten things up. It's a demonstration of uh, using thermite for welding of railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And it really gets going. It cooks up to a, you know, a brightness. It's like 2,700 degrees. So it's really, uh, it's like a nice incandescent light bulb, except a huge one. 
Right. Yeah, it whites, whites out the screen. Right at that point, I click on my um, audio clip from Manford Man Earth Band, you know, that, that clip blinded by the light. Right. <laughs> because it just strikes you. Nobody was blinded by, by such a light in Manhattan. That eliminates nukes, thermite, you know, all, all sorts of hot things. You didn't see any bright flashes. Or right. you can't have high, high temperatures either without having the bright light. So, I, don't, I don't know, the thermite one, we had another guest on, and he was, that's all he said was it was the thermite, which kind of made sense, but I mean, say. For people who don't look at the details. Exactly. I mean, when I look at yours, you've got all the facts here. So I mean, And also, if, if thermite's going to cut through something, you know how thermite works. It, it's a, through heat transfer. Mm -hmm. you got to melt the outside before it can then melt, melt the next layer, you know. And if you have this four-inch thick beam, how's it going to melt it instantly? How are you going to wire up this thing? Also, if you're going to use bombs, how are you going to wire it up to have it, you know, precise uh, detonation times? You know, have you ever you know, been driving, uh, you know, along the road and you see these signs of blasting zone ahead, turn off cell phones and two-way radios? Exactly. Uh, how are you going to do that in Manhattan without people knowing? Right. So how can you, you can't really have remote control uh, detonations very well. Well, that's one thing that, I never understood where people say that, you know, it was brought down. But I'm thinking, like, how in heaven's name would they possibly wire buildings like that with people in them without anyone noticing anything? You come into your office one morning, the wall's missing, you, just, you might not notice, you know. Yeah, primer cord running up and down the hallways. And, and the bomb-sniffing dog. I don't know. It's, I don't know. No, and then also, the, the, the deal with nukes, uh, you talk about, well, nukes equals lots of heat, uh, big boom, you know. Oh, it couldn't have been a nuke. Or is it people saying nukes, actually? I haven't heard that one. Oh, lots of people are saying that one. What, yeah, what kind it, of it, nuke or, is that? <laughs> or, or mini nukes, or micro nukes, or pocket-sized nukes, or apple-sized nukes. That wasn't a nuke. Or, or a bunch of nukes. Uh, if you have, you know, five nukes on every floor, how do you, how do you, you know, time them? You, you come up with that same problem again, and you still have the heat issue. And, and you have a radiation problem. And then, uh, like in, in my book, I have a picture of, of the um, radiation fallout from Chernobyl all around the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, could they have kept that a secret? Uh-uh. Everybody around the world would be measuring something. And uh, so that didn't happen. Yes, there there is tritium and some other weird things. That doesn't mean nukes. A nuclear process, like with John Hutchison stuff, like transmutation. Mm -hmm. And that's consistent with, and what I'm calling this technology, I don't like, you know, fancy uh, fad terms, you know, lingo. I also don't like to usually use such a description as even what what it is because few people recognize you know it, it uh, scares people. But you know I call it magnetic electrogravitic nuclear reactions. Okay. It's a nuclear reaction, not as in a nuke bomb, but it it involves it's just like uh, uh, the same type of of um, low energy nuclear reactions that was termed. Cold fusion, erroneously termed that. It was a derogatory term. But that, that uh, Pons and Fleischmann were working on in 1989. There's another kind of cold fusion that doesn't really work. It's kind of useless. And um, it, But this kind does work. And finally, I think in 2009, the 20th anniversary, Pons and Fleischmann were vindicated. But, you know, it, it, it buried that from us. It was valid, um, a valid discovery. But there's a lot of 
uh, folks out there, you know, hey, you know, he controls the energy, controls the people. So you wouldn't want people to have free energy. Yeah, well, I had other people talking about that before, various other things. But, I mean, no matter what, they never want us to have free energy because that affects too many millionaires, which won't let it happen. So can you see what, 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 why this book uh, is a problem? Is As long as it, not many people see it, then it's not so much a problem. But they've got to manage it because if very many people start seeing it, the truth, you know, five people know the truth, that's fine. But if, you know, 5,000, that's going to be a problem. You know, 50,000... Uh, it starts becoming an issue. It's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. But, okay, this is a form of free energy technology that was used on 9-11. It caused the molecules to separate. That's a pretty powerful technology that can cause a material just to come apart to turn to dust. Now, look at the cover image of my book. Actually, After yeah. you understand this and realize, is there any denying this technology exists? No, it's about the only thing that could explain this. There's just no other explanation how a building this size can just disappear. And the whole world can know. It isn't like, well, maybe so-and-so made uh, errors in their measurements. That's what they're saying about, um, you know, the, the cold versus excess heat measurements. You know, you some scientific errors, and they, they, could, they could keep muddling it up that way. And they get people to, to produce bogus data about it and, and argue round and round circles. But with this, if people get out of their brainwashing of, collapse and look at this and understand you know just you know especially if they read the book but looking at that picture what that shows is everybody around the world can know that free energy technology exists they don't need to go to anybody's lab they don't need to take anybody else's word for it they can know for themselves and what is good about that there can be some good that comes out of this you know right now uh if you're developing free energy technology in the secrecy of your basement you usually get suicided before you get very far. Uh, with this, if everyone knows it exists, everyone can develop it in broad daylight. And now you see why this book needs to be covered up. Yeah. A, a friend of mine calls this uh, holy water. You know, you, you throw this, it's a, uh, sprinkle some of this on someone, and you can you can see, you know, like they're a vampire or whatever. Well, we're going to do our best, too, to get it out here. Now that all the listeners hear it, and we'll put it on all the websites. This shows that free energy technology exists in a way that anybody can understand. You see the beams flying through the air, turning into dust as they fly through the air, and they don't hit the ground. Exactly. Because they've turned to dust. That's very compelling right there, actually, that one part right there. That's, even if you could explain all the rest, which you can't, you can't explain that. Beams just do not disappear. But it's not just those those columns, but there's, there's a lot of different examples of that. They... As I say that, you know, it looks like Alka-Seltzer. Think of an Alka-Seltzer tablet. It's a rigid, solid object. But you change its environment, you put it in water, and change its environment, it effervesces and dissolves. Mm -hmm. Think of steel. It's rigid and solid. You change its environment, it effervesces and dissolves. Something about the environment changed. And if another uh, chapter in the book also shows some kind of indication of something else changing. The Earth's magnetic field did abrupt shifts with each of the events on 9-11 at the precise moment. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if you'd read that much in the end about the hurricane and the magnetometer stuff. I guess you didn't you haven't read it recently. No, no, I actually, well, you and I know this. We got together at first back like last October, 
And that's actually when I had read stuff and I... Uh, You've forgotten about it. Yeah, and I briefly gone through it. And like I said, I have two pages of notes here, too. I've just been kind of preparing for a test like you used to do in school. You know, just breezing <laughs> right. through it again. <laughs> right, you forgot about the hurricane. That's uh, Well, I mean, I did... I did remember the hurricane. I just didn't remember it was you. Look at page three, uh, 434 and 435. 434, you can see that the circle is the same size. And it's, you know, on the 10th, the 11th, and the 12th. And you can see the circle gets closer to, to the shore and then moves away. Also notice the size of the blob inside that circle it gets bigger in the, in the middle day. That's so a, a good-sized hurricane, too. Oh, yeah. It was the closest and then it moved out. Now, we had this big high-pressure system and then, you know, over the entire continent, and it was moving east. And guess, guess when they met? The, <laughs> that, right? Precisely, precisely, uh, uh, at, at 10 a.m. on 9-11. A little bizarre. Because on the, this, the chart, you see, um, you know, the pressure system. Mm -hmm. The high-pressure system is moving in. You see the pressure going up. And then you see it abruptly going down when the, because the hurricane is a low-pressure system, and it ran into it. And the peak of that, it, between it going up and going down, is right at 10 a.m. So that shows that that's where, where the uh, systems met. And a high-pressure system rotates clockwise. In the northern hemisphere, the um, hurricane goes counterclockwise. So here we have two counter-rotating systems meeting. And that's something, like I say, you never really heard about. Generally, hurricanes are talked about till you're fed up with them, and they didn't say a word about this. Right, right. Yeah, easy. Milk away. And then it, you know, it lasted for quite a few days, till like the, I think the 17th. And it started on the 1st of August. And did it go away right after the events no. of 9-11 then? No, it backed, it backed out and it went up uh, to Nova Scotia. Oh, okay. I going to say, if it mysteriously just disappeared after that, that would even be fishier. It, the Canadians were watching it. Oh, were they? And it was in their, their danger watch zone. But page 424, that shows the Earth's magnetic field, also shows um, the, the pressure, the humidity, and various other things, you know, charted with time for the right. days le leading up to it. But notice the, the green bunch of data that peaks right at 10 a.m. Oh, exactly. That's the high-pressure system moving in, meeting the hurricane, which brings the pressure down. Oh, that, wow. that shows that the two systems met right then. And, and also the, the Earth's magnetic field um, started building up about 20 minutes before the North Tower got its, its hole. And then abruptly shifted right when the North Tower got its hole. It's, it's a whole uh, other um, bunch of stuff, like, you know, Building 7. So many people, you know, and they repeat it over and over again. They want people to think that Building 7 was a regular controlled demolition. Uh, if it's if it's regular controlled demolition, it needs to follow, you know... Logic, right? It, you know, it means it makes a boom when it hits the ground. It makes a sound. Oh, I do have a, a, a something to add in here. There's a um, a worker in the North Tower who read my book and and uh, became a big supporter of what I'm presenting. Mm -hmm. And he uh, he realized he wasn't going to get any work done that day, so he decided he's going to go home. And he walked past the South Tower. It looked like the fires were about out. He went down to the the ferry terminal because he he lived over on Staten Island. And as he's waiting in at the ferry terminal, it's some big buildings right close up, so you can't see the towers from where they were. were. Some idiot came up and told him that the South Tower collapsed, and they thought that was so dumb. They thought that guy was just crazy making up stuff mm -hmm. because 
After all, they just walked past the tower. It was in good health. They didn't hear anything, they, you know, and they, they didn't uh, feel anything. They didn't feel the ground vibrate. I mean, if a big building like that 110-story building crashed down and you're a few blocks away, wouldn't you hear it? Yeah, you'd think so. Then they thought that guy was crazy. Then there's, huh, what's going on? Yeah, that's, it may, I mean, if it would have actually fallen over on its own in a traditional way, it would have taken out a huge chunk of lower Manhattan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't have just uh, fell in its own hole and then disappeared. You'd think if terrorists wanted to uh, really cause some damage, they just they tip one of those things over and take out Manhattan. Oh, exactly. I mean, that was one of my first thoughts when they said that. I'm like, why would a terrorist want to make this fall that neat? They'd want to make that thing fall over and do a domino effect and take everything out. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's so many aspects of this, but you know the basic things, and I guess trying to wind this up, that yeah, they didn't burn up or slam to the ground, but turn into dust in midair. And we know that because if they slam to the ground, we'd see a pile of rubble left over. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. We'd see, uh, you know, we, instead we saw lower Manhattan covered with dust. Also, if they slammed to the ground, they would have ruptured the bathtub and flooded lower Manhattan. That right. didn't happen. And if they slammed the ground, the, Earth's, the, the uh, seismic recording stations would have shown it. didn't yeah. happen. It's kind of hard to contradict with that. Well, if there were bombs in the basement, bombs are hot, so you'd have a steam explosion. Right, and all those people that were in that stairwell, too, that was there, they wouldn't have survived bombs in the basement. Right, right. Yeah, that, that pretty well proves it wasn't a bomb down there, because if a bomb was down there, it would have started from there, and they wouldn't have made it as it was. Yeah. There's just no yeah, they, way. Right, they hadn't exited out the uh, building yet, but you know, bombs blow stuff into chunks, and chunks go flying, and they stay chunks until they hit something. They don't dissolve in, in mid-flight. Right. Well, I got something here kind of change the subject just a bit but uh, there's all those conspiracy theories and all that craziness out there about 9-11 what are your thoughts on all that because i know there's you know they say things about you too what uh, i know you've got a lot of flack from all that what do you what are your thoughts about that stuff well a conspiracy theory is you know involves uh who conspired with whom to do what uh, it's when two or more people conspire to commit a crime. I'm talking about the physical evidence, the forensic evidence. I'm not talking about who planned what with whom. So what I'm doing has nothing to do with conspiracy theory. It also has nothing to do with theories. Now, many people have speculated as to who committed crimes of 9-11 or how they did it and so forth, but without addressing what happened. Speculation of this kind is nothing more than conspiracy theory, a phrase that also disca- describes the box cutter story we're giving before new on 9-11. My research, not speculation, not theory, is a forensic investigation of what happened on 9-11. And anyone who declares who did it before they know how it was done and have determined what was done is merely promoting either speculation or propaganda. Exactly. You've heard that popular chant, 9-11 was an inside job. Right. Well, scientifically speaking, it's no different from the chant that 19 bad guys with box cutters did it. Neither one is the result of a scientific scientific investigation supported by evidence that would be admissible in court. They're just theories. That's that's all it is. And before you determine, you know, who did it, you need to determine what it is that was done. Well, I know that your stuff is all based on fact. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. But kind of what I'm saying, too, is I know you're getting flack from other people saying that you're a conspiracy theory nut and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I, I'm assuming you've you've been getting flack from people about this, too, because I know how this kind of stuff goes. How, how have you dealt with all of that? Well, if, if it's, uh, you know, going on behind your back, you can't really deal with it. But there, there are things that leak out into 
uh, clouding people's view of things, and that's what they do it for. You know, if if I'm if if it's said that I have a theory, that sounds uncertain. Sounds like speculation, rather than I have empirical evidence, and all I look at is the evidence of what is in my book. A lot of people call for a new investigation. What they're doing is basically denigrating the forensic investigation I've conducted. They want an, an independent investigation. Here it is. That's exactly it's, what you did. And it's another thing that uh, spilled over into my legal case. It's been assumed because the truth movement is you know, claiming it was an inside job. And I'm not part of the truth movement, but the judge criticized me for blaming the U.S. government did it. And I didn't do that. It, I was talking about science fraud and the contractors on the NIST report, and they were mandated by Congress to determine why and how the towers collapsed. And they admitted to me, and NIST admitted to me, they did not investigate it. That's fraud. Mm-hmm. And that's what my case was about. But after that, I wanted to make it clear and say, for the record, I do not believe that our government is responsible for executing the events of 9-11, nor do I believe that our government is not responsible for executing the events of 9-11. This is not a case of belief. It's a crime that should be solved by a forensic study of the evidence. And before you can determine who did it, it must first be determined what was done and how it was done. And that is the purpose of my research. And very well said there. Thank you. And something that often gets gets forgotten. As I said at the beginning of this, that you know we should uh, let the evidence lead to the conclusions and not let the conclusions color the evidence. That's that's very true. What else can you do? I mean, if you get the real evidence, that's about all you can do. Is is try to get people to look at it. Yeah, well, and that's another issue in itself, too. My gosh, you can have the truth, which you do have here, and trying to get people to look at it and believe it uh, is a completely different story. Well, people say they want a new investigation. Well, you know, here it is. It isn't the answer you want. Well, it's what the investigation shows. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what, at that, I think we pretty well covered everything, I believe, unless there's anything we missed, because we're running just a little bit low on time. There's, uh, how about giving out your website information again, too, uh, before we forget that? I know we did it once, but just again for everybody. Uh, my main website is drjudywood.com. That's D-R-J-U-D-Y-W-O-O-D. Two four-letter names. No, no space in there. Just drjudywood.com. And the book site is where did the towers go? Dot com. It's hard to type because there's no space. It's just where did the towers go? Dot com. And we'll put, we're going to put a link on our page too, directly to yours, right from the show page, so people can go there too. So, is, is there anything we missed? Is there anything you wanted to say in closing? There? Oh, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> a whole lot of interesting things, and we, we kind of went all over the place. But it, the book is very well organized. If you want to understand what happened, I think anyone who has uh, honestly read the book, you know, and openly comes away knowing what happened exactly. and that is a lot to be said because so many people want to know what happened well this book is i mean say it's truly amazing i was extremely impressed with it very well written you know and there's facts everywhere but what we're gonna have to do judy is definitely we're gonna have you on again because uh even though this has been almost two hours we haven't even covered anything there's so much more we got to do so we're gonna have you back again as long as that's okay with you sure i'd, I'd be honored Thank you, and thank you for having me today. Okay, no problem. Uh, well, we got to get going here, and uh, again, Dr. Judy Wood. 
That was Dr. Judy Wood. We'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. Edgeonair.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out ufo-info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on theedgeonair.com. Welcome back. With us right now is our very own Michael Clean. How are you doing today, Mike? Hey, John. I'm doing great. Uh, it's great to be with you as always. So what do you have for us today? Another one of your famous top ten list, right? Oh, yeah. And this is a, a brand new one. And it's a little bit something for the ghost lover in all of us and also for our history buffs out there. Because this list is the top ten old-timey ghost stories in Illinois. Now, these are ghost stories from the 1800s and early 1900s. So some of them are very well known, some of them not so well known, but hopefully all our audience will appreciate these stories. That sounds good. A lot of your stories are old too, but this one's exclusively all the old ones then. Oh yeah, and you'll notice a lot of these stories come from southern Illinois because that was the first area of the state to be settled extensively. So a lot of our stories come from that area, and also because uh, there were a couple of guys at the beginning of the uh, 1900s. One, one was a professor writing in the 1930s. Another one was around the 1950s and 60s. They did a lot of work collecting these stories from the old-timers in the area. So a lot of these are firsthand. Well, that's cool. Yeah, so let's start at number 10. This comes from Bond County, Illinois. This is the James Nolan Lights. During the 1880s, local residents gathered nightly around an abandoned farmhouse outside the small town of Pocahontas in order to catch a glimpse of strange lights that emanated from within. Some claimed to hear sounds and even see the ghost of a man leaving the house with the body of a headless woman cradled in his arms. One skeptical reporter blamed the lights on a prankster. So not uh, not too scary, but that's why it's at number 10. Well, well that's kind of scary, a headless woman. <laughs> All right, number nine is the Gooseneck Ghost in Macomb, Illinois. Uh, this was the home of Western Illinois University, where I went for about a year and a half. So the Gooseneck Ghost was the local name of a spook light that appeared along the railroad tracks just west of town in the early 1900s. It was first seen in January 1908, by a father and son who were driving a team of horses back home. The light startled their horses and they took off running. The local newspaper described the ghost as, quote, a bright light and noticed its proclivity for tracing, uh, chasing travelers in the area. Looking for the gooseneck ghost became quite a sport for Macomb area residents, and some even brought ice cream and picnicked as they watched for it. <laughs> Eventually, it was discovered that the ghost was actually a hoax that involved a Japanese lantern attached to a kite, but the prankster was never caught. So that's kind of interesting. 
you don't see a lot of Japanese lanterns anymore. No, well, actually, well, I guess in the UFOs, people release them all the time for UFO hoaxes. That's that's something I've heard, but I've actually never even seen one of them. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I guess it's a good way to create your own ghost if you want to. Yeah, I guess, or just you know, a handkerchief and a flashlight. <laughs> well, number eight on our list is rather famous. This is the Diamond Island Phantom outside of Hardin, Illinois. Now, this happened during the 1880s, and there were dozens of eyewitnesses that saw a strange fireball on an island in the Illinois River a short distance from the town of Hardin. Two boys first witnessed the fireball in 1885 while fishing on the shore across from the island. The bright light shot out of the trees and hovered along the riverbank, sending the boys fleeing for home. Over the next few years, many reputable people witnessed the phenomenon, but others remained skeptical. The skeptics decided to camp out on an island and prove the whole thing was a hoax. After a few hours, the orange fireball appeared and flew over their heads, ultimately landing in one of their boats where, they claimed, it transformed into an old man wearing overalls before it ultimately vanished. And uh, the phantom was never seen again. So the, those three are having to do with like ghost lights, you know, um, glowing balls. I don't think that we'll, we have any more of those on this list. Number seven is the Haunted Cabin. This is from Pope County, Illinois. Now, this was a story that was titled The Miser's Gold in Charles Neely's collection of folktales from southern Illinois. And this story is nearly identical to the one that was told about a cabin near Kingston in Adams County. This story takes place in the early days of Pope County, which would be around the 1820s, and concerns a family from Kentucky who took shelter in a cabin near the Ohio River. The cabin had been owned by a wealthy elderly hermit who was murdered by thieves, and neighbors believed it was so haunted that no one could live there. The wife was a devout Christian, however, and was unafraid of the ghost. When the ghost appeared... She asked him what he wanted, and he told her where to dig to find a pot of gold in the cellar. Sure enough, when her husband returned, the two dug where the ghost had indicated and discovered a small fortune. That's cool. Was this a leprechaun's ghost? No, it was, uh, well, it's interesting because it, it says so much about the early history of the state uh, with the migrations of people from the south coming here. And there would be abandoned cabins because people would, would come here build a cabin, live there for a little while, and then move on. So there were a lot of abandoned cabins around. And uh, so this is about a, a home that was so spooky that no one ever lived there. So it's kind of interesting. So number six is the Rock Creek Ghost from Rock Creek, Illinois. Now, Rock Creek was one of the many early settlements in southern Illinois. And there was a very well-known legend among locals there concerning a ghost that appeared in three different forms, always around the same branch of Rock Creek near a church. In the first encounter, a sheriff and his deputy were riding their horses down the road when suddenly their horses were spooked by what they described as an old-fashioned carpet bag which rolled towards them. The two peace officers fired their pistols at it and it vanished. The ghost's next incarnation was of a large shepherd dog that crossed the path of a group of boys who were coming home from church. One of them kicked at the dog, but his foot passed right through it, as though it wasn't even there. The phantom dog continued to be seen into the early 1900s. 
And uh, at night, generally, travelers around this area often heard something following them in the brush. So this was kind of kind of interesting that the, the Rock Creek ghost really was one name for several different phenomena. What was that, that first one? A, a carpet bag? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, a, a carpet bag. It would be like a piece of luggage appeared and chased two police officers. <laughs> they got chased by a suitcase? <laughs> Yeah, basically. So number five is the old Chicago water tower's hanged man. Are you familiar with that story? Yeah, I have heard about that. Yeah, this is from Chicago, Illinois. Now, this is fascinating. This building was constructed with limestone that was quarried in nearby Lamont in 1869. And for those of our listeners who know about St. James uh, Sag Church and Cemetery, I believe that church is constructed of the same limestone as this building. It's hmm, interesting. Actually, a lot of stuff was done with that limestone out here back in those days. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's said to be haunted. So Haunted limestone. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, so this uh, water tower was the only structure in downtown Chicago to survive the Great Fire of 1871. and But surprisingly, the ghost in the tower is said to have nothing to do with the fire. Uh, in the evening, several visitors have seen lights and open windows at the top of the tower, but there are no offices up there that would explain the phenomenon. Another older ghost story associated with the tower is that the shadow of a hanged man can be seen in the windows. This was a popular tale before 1900, but there have been no recent sighting. And at number four, this is a little bit more of a substantial sighting. And there were actually... Two different ladies in black in Illinois. Uh, One kind of was a foreteller of doom, I believe, around Marion, Illinois. This lady in black comes from Colchester, Illinois. An interesting story. uh, If you read one of Troy Taylor's books where he talks about Vishnu Springs, Mm -hmm. he says that a, a woman dressed in black is seen around Vishnu Springs but he actually confused Colchester's Lady in Black for uh, this ghost at, at Vishnu Springs because they're they're very close to each other. Okay, you don't so, want to con- confuse your Lady in Black ghost. Yeah, th- this was a little bit of trivia there for our listeners. Okay. So at, at any rate, between 1898 and the first decade of the 20th century, residents of the small mining town of Colchester were startled by the sudden appearance of a woman dressed in black. Her face was always covered with a black shawl. According to local newspaper reports, the first sighting took place at the corner of Hun and Maycomb Streets by a woman who was walking home from church. The lady in black did not make a sound, but merely followed the woman for several blocks before disappearing into thin air. The apparition was also spotted in the nearby towns of Bushnell and Maycomb. According to uh, reports in the town of Bushnell, the lady was seen, quote, robed in deepest mourning. She appeared at all hours of the night and in a noiseless manner. On one occasion, citizens of Bushnell even pursued the phantom, but she disappeared after a few yards. The lady in black has not been seen for at least a generation. Now, number three is... One of the more gruesome on the list, but definitely not the most by far. This is the ghost of Marshall Welch uh, from Jonesboro, Illinois. In 1863, Union Army deserters ambushed and killed a provost marshal named Welch along Dug Hill Road 
Now, this is true. I actually found documentation and news articles from the time that show that this really did happen. So it's based on a real event. But there are two versions of the story, one involving three deserters and the other involving a dozen or so. In the second version, Welch's own friend betrayed him and led him into the ambush. Since then, his ghost has been seen along the road. Another legend along Dug Hill Road uh, concerns a man named Bill Smith, who reportedly witnessed a spectral wagon pass over his head. The wagon was typically ghoulish fare, pulled by a, a pair of black horses. So number two on our list is a phantom steamboat that was seen in Lewistown, Illinois. Now, tales of phantom ships frequently grace the coasts of Florida and the Carolinas, but such things are not unheard of in Illinois. Until the advent of automobiles and air travel, river, vo- river boats were a primary mode of travel and a common sight on Illinois waterways. Fulton County is home to a phantom river boat that makes its appearance whenever the waters of the Spoon River swell. The legend begins in the late 1840s when an inexperienced riverboat crew attempted to navigate the river during a flood. The sound of a whistle and the passengers singing Sweet By and By was the last thing the town folk ever heard of the vessel, that is, until a few years later. In 1853, during another flood, eyewitnesses heard the distinctive sound of a whistle blowing in the fog. They rushed to the river's edge and saw the same boat that had vanished years before. This time, it was wrapped in an eerie glow, and four gleaming white passengers stood on deck, singing sweet by and by. Several men attempted to approach the steamboat with a skiff, but as they got closer, the air became icy and the fog was too dense to see where they were going. The phantom vessel disappeared into the night. That's kind of cool. Were there a lot of witnesses to that, did it say? There was a huge story, and there's a lot of newspaper articles about it as well. Some of those but older it, stories are really cool, the descriptions and the way they go into them. Well, it's it's neat because back then newspapers were much more sensational, and they really they had no problem printing these ghost stories from all over the state. Mm-hmm. So it's really a, a great resource for these. Yeah, so, you don't see them very often now if you pick up your copy of the Chicago Tribune. No, not at all. Uh, so let's go down one, 10 to, uh, to 2, and then we'll determine which one is the best old-timey ghost story in Illinois. So number 10 was the James Nolan Lights. Number 9 was the Gooseneck Ghost. Number eight was the Diamond Island Phantom. Number seven was the Haunted Cabin. Number six was the Rock Creek Ghost. Number five was Old Chicago Water Tower's Hanged Man. Number four was the Lady in Black from Colchester. Number three was the Ghost of Marshall Welch. Number two was the Phantom Steamboat. And the number one best old-timey ghost story in Illinois is, of course... The Headless Horseman of Lakey's Creek. Have you ever heard that legend? No, actually I haven't. Oh, it's a very famous one from southern Illinois, and it's our very own Headless Horseman story. Now, this is quite possibly one of the oldest ghost stories in Illinois. It was passed down as an oral tradition until John W. Allen put the story on paper in 1963. So, the uh, the mysterious man named Lakey, as well as his untimely end, has been immortalized in the folklore of southern Illinois. Long before a concrete bridge spanned the shallow creek 
1.5 miles uh, east of McLeansboro, a frontiersman named Lakey attempted to erect his log cabin near a ford along the wagon trail to Mount Vernon. One morning, a lone traveler stumbled upon Lakey's body. Lakey's head had been severed by his own axe, which was left at the scene. According to legend, his murderer was never found. For decades after the murder, travelers reported being chased by a headless horseman that rode out of the wood, woods along Lakey's Creek. Uh, this is a quote from John W. Allen's book. He says, Always the rider on a large black horse joined travelers approaching the stream from the east and always on the downstream side. Each time, and just before reaching the center of the creek, the mist-like figure would turn downstream and disappear. Yeah, so there you have it, uh, the top ten best old-timey ghost stories in Illinois. And there wasn't a single hanging in that one. I'm very impressed. I think your first top ten no, list no, yet. No, <laughs> no, there was. The, the hanged man in the water tower. Well, you can't you can't escape uh, the hangings when it comes to ghost stories. Well, well, some of your top ten lists are pretty well the top ten hangings. <laughs> you know, that might be a top ten list all in and of itself. I think the only one that had no hangings was the UFO list. <laughs> well, I mean, this is... What, like my 15th top 10 list? I'm mm-hmm. kind of running out of ideas. So. There's no janitors in this either. Yeah. That, well, they didn't have janitors back then. There you have it. Top 10 uh, old-timey ghost story. All right. We'd like to thank Michael Clean and Dr. Judy Wood for joining us on tonight's show. We'll be back next week, Friday nights, 10 to 11, theedgeonair.com. Also, Sunday nights, 730. You can catch us on ufo-info.com as well. See you then. <laughs>